Hello and welcome to Deep Impact, a proud member of the Doof Network where we dive deep into our Bosmost second work five years on. Coming up next is Elliot Diebold. And that was Ruben Morehouse. And we are back to talk about the interlude for chapter four, the final chapter. Um, yep. It's, it's another textbook. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's Black Lamb's Blood, the book that yes. was given to Blake by the lawyers to read. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we've got some snippets of what it's about. And uh, basically, we we dive into it more in this chapter. It's kind of a cross between a a theoretical work on the morality of diabolism and a biography of its author. Yeah, I, 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 there's a certain irony. Uh, this book spends about half the time referring to the rest of diabolists as narcissists who don't think <laughs> of the future. And then it spends the other half talking yeah. about the life of the author. Uh, there's a little bit of hypocrisy mixed into what I think otherwise is a book that mostly achieves the goal of the author yeah um it's it the start of the book kind of talks about how every author's first work at least for diabolists is quite masturbatory and i'm going to try and avoid that and say something a bit grander but then it kind of just devolves into that anyway (laughs) yeah (laughs) which is fun Um, They, they kind of take a high road at some points where they're like yeah you know a normal book would just go into the specifics of the fight but I'm not going to mm. do that. And then they just talk about some other aspect. And it's like, that is unique and, and, and probably good. But you are still talking about yourself and your experiences. Yeah. Um, I I love this chapter, Elliot. Like, I think this is my favorite chapter so far. The interludes are always special. But this one, I just, it just is the perfect blend to me of like world building lore and interesting, weird situations and, you know, new information and all that stuff. Uh, yeah, I absolutely loved it as well. Uh, it it ties into the world. Uh, it ties into Blake and Rose's story. It's just fantastic in its own regard. It's I really liked it as well. Mm, um, yeah. So it, it starts out with author kind of describing their desire to do good, even as a diabolist, and kind of discussing the meanings of right and wrong and good and evil. And those words are all capitalized. <laughs> Yeah, I love, uh, this is introduced right in the first paragraph. It's like the final word of the paragraph is the word wrong, but capitalized. Mm. And that that's really, this book tries to talk about, you know, yeah, as you said, right, wrong, good, evil, uh, you know, fair, unfair. And yeah. in doing so, it has to sort of work around the, the concept of karma and that effectively in this universe right now, there are correctly right and wrong things and so it does yeah. this and, and yeah. you know and devils <laughs> and demons are seen as objectively wrong and evil and so the author capitalizes these uh when they're talking about that aspect of of the universe because it's like you know you need to distinguish somehow about when you're talking about something that you think is wrong and something that is kind of at the at the moment objectively wrong yeah, I love this kind of discussion because, you know, in in our world, I, I don't really believe in the concepts of good and evil as they apply to, like, labels for humans, right? People have mm. motivations and they can be flawed and they can be corrupt, but, you know, people aren't intrinsically good or evil. But in a world with, uh, with demons and angels and, and all kinds of stuff, like, you know, these creatures, it could be fair to say that they're evil. And uh, people that deal with them and get kind of corrupted or possessed by them... Um, why aren't those people evil? Maybe they are. Like, shit, diabolists could actually kind of be evil. Yeah, uh, and I think I was saying this on our uh, Doof Discord the other day, but it reminds me of our discussion uh, in the Dirk Gently episode of Media MD, where we sort of talked about when you have in fiction this universe 
that just does have an opinion mm. on what is right and what is wrong you you're sort of being asked to take a step back and and sort of just acknowledge that within the terms of the text that is wrong but then also mm. i think the the reason authors do that is to then get you to sort of ask uh, you know you use that to challenge your own assumptions in the world like you know mm. when when they set up fictitious uh borders around what is right and wrong that i think that encourages you to look at what maybe a border what borders you have constructed in your own life mm. to to you know sort of draw the same lines in in real life yeah i mean thinking about creatures like a demon right that does evil things i'm sure there's a way to kind of abstract that out and apply those same acts to things that could be done in the real world like you know a demon murdering a bunch of people <laughs> we have a we have we have an incest demon in this very chapter that i think sort of fits that bill like it it takes a symbolically well it is born from from my understanding of the chapter of this mm. symbolically wrong act and and you know this is basically mm. the book objectively saying incest is wrong yeah well yeah but maybe maybe that's a blunt reading of it because I, there is obviously power in this world to the beliefs of people and so maybe there's a, a reading of this where it's like this is an incest demon yes and in this context this is like an evil incarnation of this but is that born from incest as a concept being inherently evil or is that born from you know society viewing it as such and kind of taking that lens and that kind of builds the 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 pressure to on the universe to kind of make a incarnation of this evil concept right or no exactly an incarnation that's... of this concept that becomes evil because society sees it as evil i don't know yeah yeah no, that's that's sort of what i was trying to say is yeah mm. it, it's asking you you know it, in the universe it's sort of seen as oh this is a demon and it's associated with this concept so that's bad and you sort yeah. of being asked to take a step back and say, well, is it intrinsically so? Yeah, and, and maybe even the the label of demon is just an abstract label that we apply on others that, you know, that, that take incarnations of bad things, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Wh- why isn't Conquest a demon? He's an incarnation of a concept, but it's one that is a bit more palatable, and even so, not that much, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. He's definitely an incarnation that uh, walks that line, I guess, yeah. Mm-mm. So I, I want to pull out a quote here from the chapter, which I really like, um, where the author says, I've known since I admitted that I was a diabolist, that anything I wrote would have to be something that offended certain parties and marched to a different rhythm. And I really like this because it pulls out the phrase, I want to pull out the phrase specifically, since I admitted I was a diabolist, right? Yeah. Because this is a theme throughout this chapter of the author kind of, at some point in their life, they have a very religious upbringing, and at some point in their life, they have to admit to themselves that they are a practitioner that has spent enough time working with demons that they're a diabolist now. And that's something they have to kind of wrap their head around. Um, (laughs) And it kind of indicates, it kind of indicates there is this path of just kind of happening to fall into diabolism, right? Out of background, out of a desire to seek power or to do good, you know, you can fall into being a diabolist. Yeah, and and exactly what that label means uh, is, is something that's discussed later. But uh, you know, this doesn't sound like anyone we know, uh, yeah, right? Like- no, totally. <laughs> Our main character clearly isn't walking a version of this path where they're kind of they are falling into being a diabolist. I mean, being pushed in some ways, right? The lawyer's obviously pushing Blake in that direction, but the poos the poos binding wasn't the lawyer's doing. You know, Blake's just kind mm. of slid into that. Uh, and something that I really love is at the end of uh, at the end of four twelve, the previous chapter, Blake talks about feeling like, oh, I bound this evil thing, 
and it's made the place better, right? Like it's, I feel like he's right on that. He's right on the precipice of taking that step and going, "Oh, I can just bind all the demons, and then yeah. everything will be better, right?" Yeah, which is exactly what this author set out to do. And I mean, like, it obviously, like, this is meant to mirror Blake's story. But I think what's mm-hmm. interesting is it's not just mirroring Blake's story in the sense that Wildbow put this interlude at this point in the story to make us think on it, which is part of it, but. Uh, even in universe, it lines up because this, like, this book was given to Blake by the lawyers yeah. to to sort of cause him to question his own path that he's currently walking. Yeah, which I think is brilliant. And and you know, Pact has been doing this a lot, where it blurs the line between, uh, you know, meta text and text. And and I yeah. think this is just another great example of it doing that. Yeah, I mean, this this is one of the best possible things the lawyers could have done to get Blake interested in being a diabolist, right? Like, yeah. This book is the equivalent of them saying, hey, look, it's not so bad. <laughs> like, you can do good. Um, and then, obviously, later, once he's crossed that line, it's easier to be like, but instead, why don't you do this? Uh, so, I, I also just love that throughout this whole arc, throughout all of arc four, we've kind of had this these beats of, of Blake kind of getting more into the book. He first gets the book in 4.1, and, you know, he's he's obviously not keen. He reads it, and he doesn't really comment on it except kind of neutrally saying oh it wasn't really had didn't really have what i needed at the time and then later when he's talking to to the knights he calls it propaganda but he says well it wasn't completely wrong <laughs> that's honestly like i i think when he specifically said that i was like god i want to see this book and yeah. now I, I have seen a bit of this book and i do have to say like i completely agree with his read there's there's bits in this book where i'm like yeah but there's there's a lot of also uh, other bits where i'm like yeah yeah like fair yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, you know, the thesis it's of convincing. this book, it, <laughs> as I say it, is really, I think it is possible to use this stuff for good, like to do diabolism for good. It's just really mm. fucking hard and, uh, you know, both individually and on a societal level and probably just not feasible. Yeah. I mean, possible, yes. Realistic, no, I think is, is kind of where yeah. the book lands. Um, so the, the author kind of describes their approach to writing the book and the efforts to study their peers and kind of to to break new ground by studying karma or lingering effects of demons. Yeah, I I guess I got a little bit confused uh, in the distinction between those two, but maybe that's because I'm trying to treat them as separate things, uh, mm. which is, is, you know, maybe maybe they're more interwoven than I thought. But I, I, I like this idea that the author has where, you know, just sharing books that have specific rituals and, and ideas uh, is just like a stopgap of, of only sharing a little bit. And really that's not, propagating the real techniques and tactics and you know that's why we see mm. references to diabolists having masters because i think you actually need to learn the yeah. the reasons for the methods not just the methods it's like it's like that whole yeah. like show you're working in maths thing from school like you don't just <laughs> give the answers you got to show how you got there and that's sort of this discrepancy uh that i'm getting here yeah yeah definitely and of course blake does not come from that background <laughs> no uh, and, and i mean this book kind of advertises itself as unique in that it's one of the few books that's looking at this sort of long-term karmic effect mm. of, of all this stuff, uh, yeah. so, particularly for diabolists. Uh, mm. we, we, and it's important because, you know, Blake is someone who I think part of his grandmother's original instructions were he has to leave his life with less debt than he started with. Mm. So, you know, good thing he's actually getting a book that's kind of like, hey, here's some ideas on how you could do that. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's a good point. Um, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. So this author is kind of describing their life throughout this book. It's so tragic. I mean, so they've spent their life being incredibly careful, basically. They fucked up a few major times, but basically even the scales, karmically speaking. And or now to kind to, of cap yeah. it off, they're, they're writing this controversial book, which will earn them enemies and will make them hated if even anyone reads the book. It's like, <laughs> it's such a tragic life. And we find out how tragic as we go on. Yeah, they're, they're definitely a true sort of martyr. Like they know they're probably going to get killed for what they're saying, mm-hmm. but they just feel this need to say it. And I mean, there's so many points in this book where you really get this sense from the author that they're just, they're saying, I don't think anyone's going to read this, but like, please just someone do. And like, I just want to plant seeds of these ideas in people's mm-hmm. heads. Like just, it's a desperate plea to spread this, you know, ultimately the thesis of this book, but this idea that, you know, this stuff isn't inherently wrong. It's just too easy to use wrong. And we just need to change how we approach it. Yeah, totally. So, this is where we dive more into the author's story. Yeah. They describe the first demon that they ever encountered. Um, Their father was kind of a preacher slash exorcist, and uh, they accompanied him to to deal with a demon, an incest devil, uh, a kind of incarnation of incest, like we referenced. Yeah. And so, it's, it's just basically a super fucked up episode of Supernatural. Yeah, you wouldn't want to send brothers Sam and Dean up against this one. <laughs> or would you? <laughs> Depends on what fandom, what part yeah, of the supernatural I, fandom you're in. <laughs> based on based on what I've seen, I think a fair chunk would. But uh, mm. it, it, we learn a lot about, like, you know, this book, const- uh, sorry, this chapter uh, constantly sneaks in new bits and bobs <laughs> uh, about, like, the lore of the world. And and we get some bit here, some bits here. So, like, we, we get ev- evangelists. Mm-hmm who seem to be, like, the opposite of Diabolists, and they specialise specifically in, like, angels. Um, yeah. And I, I thought that was interesting because the author spends so much of this book saying Diabolism can be used for right, uh, but then we see that there are people who can communicate with angels, which I think this is the first time we've got confirmation that there are, like, angels uh, yep. who are presumably good, with a capital G, uh, mm-hmm. and the people who work with the angels are also, also seem to be tasked with taking out demons. That seems to me like the more obvious path of defeating <laughs> the wrong. Uh, and so it's kind of like, I think this is brought up specifically so we can see why this method isn't good enough. Mm. Yeah, um, it goes wrong. Uh, I, I don't <laughs> want to pull out the quote because it, it kind of unfolds slowly and it's too much to really read out here. But, you know, th- there's a part where we where it describes that everyone walked in, but nobody left intact. And the way mm. we kind of find out what that means is pretty horrifying slash great um <laughs> the father leaves the the parents get a divorce the father leaves without being able to talk to the children and the narrator doesn't say why but the narrator reveals that they uh that was the last night the night before they went to the incest demon was the last night they were able to find pleasure in their own body and uh they realize what has gone wrong when the siblings come home the narrator can't look their sister in the eye, and it happened after a fight with an incest demon. So you kind of, kind of put together the rest there. Yeah, it, it wasn't until the line about not being able to look the sister in the eye that it finally mm. clicked for me. And I went, I, I scrolled back up and reread uh, all, all this, and, and it was like on, on, on that brief reread, it was like, oh, 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 god, yeah. oh, uh, yeah. like like all those all those clues and hints from you know the previous four chapters were finally clicking, and I was like, oh, this is. 
You know, it makes what Blake went through with Poe's look like nothing, really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, Poe's was a like a, a moat, right? This is yeah, a, he was just a full on devil. Uh, yeah, that has you know infected them with incest energy. I guess. <laughs> I mean, that's that's um, my understanding. Yeah. Uh, so I want to pull out something here. So there's a quote when when the author's talking about this part where the author says, I was 17 years old doing the sort of things 17-year-old boys are particularly inclined to do, right? Mm. But when when the lawyers or the, the driver of the lawyers first gave the book to Blake, he, he mentioned, your grandmother knew the author and was quite fond of her. And so there's some, like, gender inconsistency going on here, right? And you don't... It, mm. it pays off later, but for now it's just kind of a bit confusing. I, I had the picture of, oh, this book is written by a woman in my head, but that was, you know, that was like back in four point two, right? So when you reread this, I was like, "Oh, the author's a woman," and then I read it, and the author's a man, and I'm just kind of like, "Huh? Oh, I must have just misremembered it or something," you know? You just kind of write it off as, "Oh, I must have, I must have mis- been mistaken." And but the, but then this kind of moment of confusion pays off later in a really cool way. I I just yeah, it's a very fun little beat. Uh, yeah. After sort of having this pointed out to me, I, I noticed as well towards the end, there's a bit where. Uh, the author references their facial hair growing out, which mm. is definitely meant to point you in the in the direction of them being male. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I just like that as a as a little moment where it confuses you, and then kind of you realise later on what's going on, or maybe you don't, and you only really realise what's happened on a reread. I mean, it's it's a cool it's a cool bit. Yeah, uh, I also like. There's a little bit where the author discusses how they realise their siblings have lost their faith um, in in mm. God. I, I was assuming that they're talking about God. And, mm. and then the author sort of says, which is funny because they haven't, like, you know, the diabolist in the families, uh, un- by their understanding, the only one who still believes in God. Uh, and their reasoning, or their, their sort of idea behind this is, that, like, well, they believe that God exists, but they don't have faith in God. Like, uh, and they, they uh, compare it to, you know, when you sort of realize your parents are just human, but then you realize they are still your parents. And it's like, you know, the author's like, yeah, like, there is God or whatever, but what's he done for me lately? Uh, type mm. type deal right there. They've got to strike yeah. out on their own. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And and as the as the siblings kind of lose their faith in God, the author kind of describes their their fall into diabolism and how they kind of get more involved in it. Um, they talk about <laughs> they talk about like having this long journey of struggling to realize that they should be a diabolist um, and having to kind of come along this journey through self hatred to really get there. Yeah, it's more it's more evidence that it's that there is this path of hey, you know, come to be a diabolist and kind of get over the fact that you're a diabolist and just do it. Yeah, well, I mean the the part of this part of the story is basically, uh, you know, I was trying to learn about demons and stuff to fix their problems, but I didn't want to be a diabolist, and I and I had yeah. all these lines I wouldn't cross, and it was only once I finally got around to crossing them that. I suddenly started to make progress. And so, you know, crossing these lines is not <laughs> such a bad thing, Blake. Yeah. Yeah. And the author never says what those lines are, but presumably it's, you know, summoning demons, binding demons, all that stuff that yeah. really makes you a diabolist. Blake has done. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, Blake, the last Blake <laughs> didn't worry too much about crossing those lines. Um, but what Blake doesn't have, what Blake hasn't done is what the author does next. Become an apprentice to a diabolist named Jeffrey. Mm. And uh, live with him and his other apprentice, Lucretia. Lucretia. Um, and Lucy. He's, 
<laughs> Let's just call her Lucy. Yeah. Um, so the author is is living with them when Jeffrey summons a demon, Agares. Yeah, and I I wanted to put this one quote from this part of the story, uh, where right towards the start, the author sort of goes, "I spent a full of uh, a full night and two days awake writing and revising the written contract. Jeffrey barely skimmed it before agreeing." And <laughs> I I feel like this is almost not just sort of going over how Jeffrey is so much more competent and confident. Uh, mm. But again, it's it's highlighting that lack of concern uh, for the future. You know, Jeffrey's yeah. just sort of like, yeah, yeah, the contract looks good. Like, you know, future Jeffrey's problem, <laughs> yeah, I guess. Fine. Yeah, and, um, you know, later on, the, the Diabolist makes reference to, sorry, the author makes reference to kind of the different tiers of Diabolist and puts Jeffrey towards the top, you know, the the mm. best diabolists, people like Jeffrey, and, and I think it's I think it's important for the author's thesis here to point out Jeffrey doesn't seem to give much thought to what could go wrong down in the long term. He's only really yeah. paying attention to the now, and that's that seems to be what really separates uh, the author apart from most. I even want to say practitioners, not just diabolists. Yeah, yeah. Um, here's a fun fact for you, Elliot. Fun demon fact. Agares, that the demon that Jeffrey summons, is mentioned as a Duke of Hell in the same text that we were talking about when we talked about uh, Pose's Marquis Andras. Man, so much pronunciation in that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, uh, the, so the author gets pretty <laughs> concerned by the plans that Jeffrey and Agares are planning, um, but is kind of bound from doing anything by the contract that he signed. So he convinces Lucretia to intervene and she is killed. Mm-hmm. The author tries to reach out to some demons and, and use his demonic knowledge to exact revenge, but he fucks up. Jeffrey doesn't get hurt, um, but the author does go into some heavy karmic debt as a result. Yeah, uh, so there's a lot to talk about here. Uh, first of all, you know, I guess don't bring your friends into this, uh, even if they're another budding diabolist. Uh, <laughs> Uh-oh, is that the <laughs> message? <laughs> I, I I think it probably is a little bit, but uh, there's there's some interesting bits here. So first of all, like it's pointed out to us that Jeffrey wasn't using this demon to fight like some particular like humans. He was specifically mm. going after like gods mm. uh, and, and trying to upstage some of the gods, which I think yep. is interesting because I, I reckon that actually ties into what the author suggests. Like the author is basically towards the end of the chapter when the author suggests this amendment to what is essentially the agreement set upon by all the gods, mm. uh, the, you know, it, I think it's important that Jeffrey was ultimately using demons to fight the gods because that's sort of, I guess, foreshadowing this idea that the gods, you know, are not necessarily always correct. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of kind of weaving threads that... <laughs> I, this is what I want to talk about with this, actually. I, I'm jumping ahead a bit in our notes, but I think this is the right time to bring it up. You you made a little uh, a little misstep before, Elliot, when you accidentally mentioned... You're referring to this chapter, but you called it the book instead of the chapter. And I think that uh, yeah. <laughs> I think that really just like sums up how engrossing this chapter is. Like I, I find myself slipping into this book and reading it as as Blake would read it, as a textbook on the morals of diabolism within this world. Like it's so engrossing. I find myself being in it and being like that's an interesting point, author, yes, mm, and kind of, like, considering <laughs> the, the moral ramifications of this fictional world. 
Uh, no, I totally agree. I've been trying really hard to watch the terms like arc, chapter, and book that I've been using uh, today, but <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think it's working. Because, uh, yeah, I agree. Like, there are almost moments reading this chapter where I felt felt similar to when I was reading, you know, uh, Homo sapiens or, or Homo deus mm. uh, recently, where it's just like, it's almost like you're just reading a real book that's dealing with morality and, and thinking about it. And then yeah. I kept having to take the step back and be like, oh, well, this is within Pact, but yeah. And, and yeah. I felt the same a little bit. Like, I remember getting so into uh, Famulus and, uh, you know, mm. the, uh, Implementum, I think was the name of the book, in the in Arc 2, and was just thinking, God, I could just read these fake textbooks. Uh, yeah, there's a part in this chapter, I can't remember exactly where it is, but th- basically the author says, oh, I'm going to break down this in this chapter, and then we'll go into this, and then we'll get into that. And then it goes from, like, chapter 2 to chapter 5, skipping over mm. all these things. In my head, I have this visceral reaction of like, no, I want the other chapters. <laughs> yeah, I, I did the same thing. There was that moment of, oh, but what about chapters three and four? Uh, and yeah. then, of course, I sort of looked at what, like, yeah, again, I had to take that step back and be like, okay, well, Walbo hinted at what they were talking about in chapter three. And like, so what's the important part of that chapter that he just wants to get through to us here? Uh, you know, like, like he, he brought up just enough so we'd be able to take the point he's trying to make. But then there's also that part yeah. of me that's like, I want to read the whole book. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's just kind of like, I want the expanded universe of, of, of diabolism textbooks. Yeah, I mean, I, I, read, I read almost all of the, uh, the World of Ice and Fire, which is basically an uh, encyclopedia of, of you know, the mm. Game of Thrones universe. So I guess mm. I definitely will just read stuff like this for fictional worlds. So <laughs> There's a market for it. Um, So something else that we get introduced to here, just a a little concept that's mentioned, a a totem kind of, like an inception totem that basically is used (laughs) to track your your karmic balance. Uh, The author has a wooden ring. We don't really hear what happens to it, but presumably like rots or something if, if he's very much in debt. Yeah, so my re- I read that. My immediate thought was, Blake needs one of these. And then mm. my second thought was, I wonder if that's what his tattoos are mm. um, to, to mm. some extent. I don't know. Like, we don't know anything about this. This is the first mention of an ability to just accurately understand karma. Like, I, I think before this, we've, uh, we had, um, oh, what's, what was her name? The Miss Lewis mm. said that she could see the flow of karma and she yeah. made it sound quite abstract. And that's all we've had up until now. So now we find out there's totems. And I'm like, oh, if Blake's tattoos aren't that, he's, he's got to get one ASAP. Yeah, I mean, it would make sense for his tattoos to be that, right? Like, they do seem to change when <laughs> things happen around him. Yeah, um, it seems... It- Maybe they're even more than that because they seem to be affected by what's happening to him and stuff as well. But I wonder if yeah, part of them is is just you know going to reflect changes in his karma. Yeah. So jumping back to the author's story, after he goes into such heavy debt, this is really the kind of formative experience that has him start to muse about karmic balance. Mm-hmm. Is it possible for Diabolus to stay karmically positive? You know. Practitioners all kind of agree that it's possible to be karmically positive for a diabolist, but time and time again, they never are. They always fuck up or they always go into debt. And so the author kind of starts thinking about this question more in terms of, well, how realistic is it actually for a diabolist to stay karmically positive? Yeah, and that's almost the the crux of the book as a whole is basically Mm. saying, yes, it is possible. You can set out to do good in this world. But the yeah. the odds are so stacked against you that it's almost certainly <laughs> not going to happen. Uh, it's yeah. just too easy not to. You uh, and, and you know the author has been through this themselves. 
You can yeah, be exactly. good for years and all it takes is one fuck up to send you massively into debt. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I mean, that was their situation, right? And so it's it's understandable mm. to see why they they see it as like unreasonable to an extent to expect that to be the attainable goal for diabolists. It's just kind of not. Um, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's not realistic, like you said. So how can diabolists improve the world? How can they be karmically positive? You know, there are solutions that revolve around the individual. You know, diabolists becoming more selfless, kind of rallying together to be better people but (laughs) the author kind of rightly i think sees this as very unlikely to ever happen so any possible solution to this question has to be a more societal change to the way diabolism works yes which and and so then from there we basically go into all the reasons that that is really hard and probably not going to happen easily (sighs) yeah so one of the things i want to point out here is is the 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 author talks about how much of a kind of self-fulfilling cycle it is that society also hates diabolists and how this is actually so hurtful mm-hmm. because the author theorizes that like like themselves, like like they did, you know, on average a diabolist probably does a bit more positive than negative overall in the world. You know, they bind demons, they they help out around the place. And sure, some things go bad sometimes, but on the whole, it's in their best interest to stay basically neutral or positive, right? Yeah. But... You know, diabolists who are very new and do bindings that they can't handle and unleash big bad things, or diabolists who are very, very experienced, kind of the top of the line, and and get away with doing consistently bad things, that's really where the bad karma from diabolism comes from. But those kinds of diabolists aren't the kind that people will hunt down if they ever hunt down a diabolist, right? Because the newer ones will already be dead by that point, and the more experienced ones are too good at what they do. And so... What what actually happens is people hunt down the middle-of-the-road diabolists that are actually doing a bit positive and, you know, take them out of the picture, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a classic sort of stigma. And and what's happening is when you attack these moderate diabolists who weren't planning to do evil, diabolic things, Yeah, when they're attacked, they usually have no choice but to unleash these things they promised themselves they wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're backed into the corner, right? Yeah, um, and yet again, I, I have to emphasize that this doesn't sound familiar. <laughs> yeah, I, well, yeah, this book obviously is very on point for Blake. Um, but <laughs> uh, but um, it, I don't even think, I mean, that's that's obviously one situation, but also, you know, let's say you are hunting Diana Diabolist and you kill them, yay for you. Now there's these other demons that somebody has to deal with and it's not going to be you and it's not going to be the moderate diabolist anymore. So Mm. I guess you've just kind of handed a resource to the more extreme diabolists or someone who's too inexperienced and will fuck it up. Yeah, it's it's another good point, yeah. Yeah, it really just does make everything worse, that situation. (laughs) Like the stigma around diabolists just means that this becomes more self-fulfilling. Yeah. And so the author concludes... This is a pretty fucked situation, and so it needs a pretty fucked solution. And so they come to their kind of most controversial set of points. Mm -hmm. One possible answer to the problem is one that will make everyone hate the author, but will is to intentionally provide texts about demons to non-diabolist practitioners, allowing them to, you know, learn how to defend themselves. Um, This would obviously allow practitioners to protect themselves and and, and be less prone to attacks from, from, you know, diabolists and would weaken kind of 
trade between diabolists by causing rifts about, you know, or who's sharing these secrets. I don't want to share my knowledge and and hopefully stop the spread of of diabolist di- diabolist knowledge. Yeah, I mean, it's it's basically yeah the idea of if, if they share the harmless and defensive parts, then you know maybe yeah. that'll help have an overall positive effect. But they point out yeah. that there's going to be problems with this. Like obviously there'll be resistance from the diabolists who currently have an edge. You're also just yeah. spreading like the it, it feels like a kind of gateway thing. Like if you're spreading out some of the information related to related to diabolism, uh, it's it's probably enough to start to point people more easily in that direction i would think yeah yeah i think so i mean you know i'm sure the defensive stuff is different to the summoning and offensive stuff but it would inform it to some degree yeah yeah (laughs) um something that i want to kind of point out while we're reading this section is you know back at the council meeting laird was confident that he knew enough warding to protect himself and his family against blake's demons right um Mm. Maybe someone has already taken this knowledge to heart to an extent. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I liked that idea when you pointed it out. I mean, we know that Rose Senior liked the author, and this seems like an idea the author would have been spitballing around mm. uh, a lot more. So it would actually totally sort of track that Rose may have cut herself some sort of deal with Laird. Like, we know that Rose wasn't really under attack from the rest of the Jacob's Bell people, seemingly. And yeah. uh, that that could just be because she was a lot more competent than Blake and Molly. Uh, but it could also be that maybe she cut a deal for herself with them, uh, you know, of this of this sort, offering protections uh, in exchange for them backing the hell off. Yeah, yeah, it's it's possible. Um, so the other conclusion the author kind of points out is maybe instead of of pro- providing info, we make it so that diabolism is harder to do that people tend towards more good with a capital g practicing um in short change the awakening ritual over time people would use a new awakening ritual that kind of shackles diabolism and eventually you know diabolism is something that only the the most crazy turn to or or the most who are willing to be shackled to do good yeah and so i like this idea because first of all it stops like new people sort of entering it like you've yeah, you've got sort of the current stock, and if you can whittle away at that, or let them whittle away at themselves, more likely, uh, you don't have to worry about others stepping up to replace them as much. Yeah, um, there's actually a comment that I almost brought to this uh, for our comment deep dive in four point ten that discussed almost exactly this. They discussed whether it would be possible to sort of uh, t- to borrow like programming ter- terminology fork uh, off the original like contract and sort of create a new license uh when yeah when practitioners awaken and i just i actually really enjoyed that discussion back then and uh it's, it's great to see it sort of coming to the fore now in the in the actual story I'm, I'm really excited to see if this is an avenue that the story goes down yeah i mean it's it's an in- it's interesting to think about because presumably what gives the awakening ritual power is the spirits right or not even presumably i think that's explicit but um yeah the spirits obviously don't won't just adopt a new ritual overnight is this possible can can you even do it can you can you convince spirits to pay attention to a new ritual and ignore the old one i I don't know yeah i mean well it seems like you know we we're given a backstory where uh all of the gods and incarnations and stuff from back in the day got together and and made this original contract which is basically the seal of solomon stuff is you signing up to those same rules that the gods and the incarnations and all the other spirits have to abide by yeah and so 
you know, that that has happened in the past. And it's a question of how could you get enough things? Because I presume it would take a lot of people and power. Uh, and I, I use people very loosely as a term uh, there mm. to to get this updated. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how do you convince people, practitioners, others to get on board with this? I don't know. Um, yeah, well, I mean, as the author sort of says, I think getting a lot of practitioners on board with uh, restricting diabolism well, would probably true. be a fairly straightforward. <laughs> That's probably the easier uh, practice. Part, <laughs> yeah. Um, so we also get a payoff to the gender confusion. The author talks about having masked their location and identity to, you know, try and protect themselves from the inevitable wrath that these ideas will bring upon them. Um, <laughs> so does this mean that they're actually female? They're actually male? The lawyers got it wrong? Maybe their gender changed halfway through their life? It's kind of hard to tell, um, but it's just a fun little thing to think about. Yeah, I, I'm just assuming that it's uh, they masked, they, they attempted to point you in the wrong direction with regards to their gender. Uh, mm. in in the book as part of masking their identity. Mm. But as they said, Maybe. it probably didn't work. <laughs> probably not. Uh, it seems a, a little bit straightforward. Um, so, yeah, we finally we kind of... We got a hint at what the title means, but it, it's kind of evidenced more when we get to what the actual ideas are. The author expects to die by reading, by writing and releasing this book. They expect to be the sacrificial lamb, giving themselves up, to kind of seed this idea in the hopes that one day it steps towards a better world. Yeah, uh, and we already sort of talked about, you know, this, this sort of feeling in the book of desperation, uh, just wanting yeah. to get this idea out at any cost and, and presumably the cost of their lives. And I guess we'll see how this attempt to spread the seed of this idea goes throughout the story. Yeah, yeah, I guess we'll have to keep an eye on it. Um but that's the end of Collateral. That's the end of Arc 4. Uh, so let's talk about this arc yeah. as a whole. And I always like to start off with the title of the arc, Collateral, right? Um, yep. I think uh, there are two meanings I want to call out, and I know you've got some other ones you want to pull out too. Obviously, yeah. Collateral in the legal term is, you know, the, the insurance, the thing you spot. So in case, you know, something goes yeah. wrong, the bank can take your car or whatever. The the rose on a chain. The rose on a chain, as the expression <laughs> goes, yeah. Um, so that's pretty obviously a, a meaning of collateral there. But I, I like the interpretation of, of kind of collateral damage. And I think I'm going to talk about it this a bit later. But, you know, like Pose's radiation as the collateral damage of dealing with, with uh, uh, demons. Mm. Same with the hyena kind of infecting and, and ruining the area around it uh, by, you know, brutalizing all the others that are in its area. Um and even the knights kind of being taking this damage from fighting a demon and taking this kind of damage to their life, I guess. Um, yeah. Uh, no, but definitely the the concept of like the collateral damage that you suffer from dealing with demons is something this chapter specifically addresses yeah. quite heavily and, and ties really well into the pose stuff you were talking about before. Um, yeah. But yeah, I couldn't help but notice sort of two other definitions for collateral. Uh, one is sort of saying that something is uh alongside but subordinate to and obviously the word subordinate just jumps out to me there mm. uh with conquest <laughs> conquest on the table um and then I, I think the other one is is when you have things that are uh what's the word like descended from uh other things but like have have, div uh, have diverged um mm. So, you know, I think, like, it's mostly used in terms of, like, livestock. So you would say, like, cattle, like, there's a collateral 
line of cattle that maybe has a new feature so they've descended from the same ancestors but they're separate uh and uh, i don't know that i might be reaching here but i think that ties into some of these ideas we're seeing with diabolism uh and this concept of starting a new uh starting a collateral branch of diabolism yeah Hmm. interesting um yeah but yeah, so I, I don't know, I, just to talk about Arc 4 overall, um, mm. I feel like the first three arcs sort of introduced us to the concepts of the world of Pact, mm. and then this arc really let us actually see them. Like, we yeah. we stepped out of Jacob's Bell and actually saw so much happening, uh, or so much actually happening, specifically Diabolism. Like, Blake was literally pulled into the world of Diabolism uh, as as he sort of fought Pose and, and the Hyena, uh, and... I think the the arc also challenged us a lot to look at what we knew or what we thought we knew. So Pose was just inverting the natural order. Um, mm. The hyena was a goblin that didn't act like a goblin in just about mm. any way, shape, or form. Uh, <laughs> and and then you see it all sort of tied up neatly in this final chapter, which sort of explicitly asks you to question the the fundamental rules of practicing. Uh, and, and so yeah. I think you know it's all about sort of getting you to question these concepts of right and wrong. Mm. Conquest is is another example of this because he just is an incarnation. And so we're constantly sort of have brought up throughout this arc. Well, (laughs) is it wrong for Conquest to do what he does? He's just evil. Yeah. Yeah. He's just Conquest. He's, he's a concept. Can a concept be good or evil? I think, I think that's another, another thing that fits into that uh, idea that I think the the arc is sort of throwing at us. Yeah. I, I love the questions that this arc brings up. And it it does it so well. Like it it there's you know we start with Blake and his and his friends and his kind of you know people that he cares about his family in air quotes. Um, mm. And those are like clearly the the example of good with a capital G. I would say right. Like this is Blake has yeah, built himself a very good life. And then we also obviously get into some really messed up shit. We basically <laughs> subvert all kinds of weird things in this chapter. Um, it basically is just to bounce around morality and diabolism and and like all these different things. It's it's very engaging. I love this chapter, so, uh, this arc so much. Yeah, well, and even things like Isadora, I, I think fits in nicely with this idea of questioning yeah. like good versus good with a capital G, because she's someone who walks around killing people and then random, well, not quite randomly, but picking others and sort of granting them good karma in a way that almost came across as cheating to me. Like you know, the we have this world with concepts of of good and and wrong and then you have others like isadora who seem to bend that or you, mm. you know sort of make it easier to to skew one way yeah i guess it does kind of feel like the first three arcs the morality of each of the characters each of the main characters we really knew was quite black and white to an extent right i mean maybe laird is the exception but a lot of the other council members are oh these are the baddies <laughs> the lawyers <laughs> oh they're evil um you know and we got mrs lewis being a bit on blurring the line and obviously blake is a bit of blurring the line as well but in this chapter everything is so gray <laughs> like <laughs> you know even like um the astrologer and 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 jeremy meath are like characters who you know, you you see the grey in their morality. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, fun stuff. Um, and I think the interlude, obviously, we, we've already talked about how it kind of ties those themes together. Um, I, yeah. I love... <laughs> the. This is the perfect book to give Blake by the lawyers. I mean, it's it's a masterstroke. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. I think in, in, in an arc where we're learning to question 
what is right and what is wrong. It's it's so perfectly capped off by this book. Yeah, and I I, I also think it's it's we kind of touched on it already, but like the collateral radiation of dealing with demons is something that's clearly quite heavily on Blake's mind right now. He mm. over the course of this arc, he went from being the happiest that we've ever seen him probably um, at the party to just being worn down by yeah. interactions, you know, at, like the the stuff with the hyena that went well, that went very well. And he's still just worn down. Yeah. Yeah, totally. He's, um, I mean, he's been through a lot. Yeah. So as we wrap up this arc, uh, we know that the next arc chapter, arc five, the title is conviction. And the arc did end with Blake being surrounded by police officers. <laughs> I wonder yeah. which meaning of conviction is it? My speculative title uh, for the arc, or the, my speculative alternative title for the arc, is Blake's Very, Very Bad Day. <laughs> uh, because I, I'm actually assuming that this next arc is just going to be all this final day where Blake's dealing with the mm. police, the abstract erasure demon. Like, it's just going to be intense. It's going to be a very wait. bad day. Yeah, well, we'll yeah. see. We'll see. Um, now, we don't normally do a comment dive at the end of these arcs, but I just wanted to pull out this comment that I really liked uh, from this user called, uh, let's see here, uh, uh, Wildbow. Um, he, he was talking about <laughs> writing this chapter and um, talking about how these, these uh, chapters, these interludes, the textbook interludes, I'm going to refer to them as, are interesting yeah. and difficult to write because they have to have some kind of defined narrative to kind of keep it interesting. And I, I, I don't know, this is just kind of a concept that I want to raise and get your thoughts on, Elliot, because I, I love this world-building stuff, and I do feel like it, I, I would be okay with it being a lot more <laughs> theoretical and a lot less <laughs> narrative. It, yeah, I, I, this is probably a personal taste thing, but I, like, I would agree. As someone who, as I sort of said, has just like read The World of Ice and Fire and and done some similar things for for Tolkien stuff as a teenager. I am just happy with sort of pure world building in, in a sense. Um, yeah, and, and particularly if that world building, wait, wait, just the raw world building in this chapter did tie into Blake's story, and I think that yeah. would probably be enough for me. Uh, like it, the the sort of author's pseudo biography that we do get was was great, but I, I mm. think I would have still been fine. Uh, without it, uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think in this chapter, I I love the world building parts so much that there are parts, you know, when he's talking about um, Lucy and Jeffrey and stuff that that kind of tie in these themes. But I don't know. I just want I just want to explore the world more. You know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, that's our episode. Oh, it's going. Oh, it's a it's a real. Uh, We've got ward length episode here today. Elliot. These are uh, these interludes. They're killer. Yeah, they get you. Um, so that's the end of uh, of collateral. That's the end of our arc. That's the end of our episode. So uh, you know, next episode will be uh, conviction five point one coming out on Monday the eighth of April. Mm-hmm. That's right. And if you want to, uh, you know, find out more about the rest of the Deep Impact episodes and all the other episodes of all the great shows on the Doof Network, head to doofmedia.com. Mm-hmm. Yes, actually on doofmedia.com you can find out about the new show that has just started uh, this last week that I'm really enjoying um, called About Face, where Scott and Matt talk about the Wildbo web serial Face. Uh, it's great. The first episode came out, definitely worth a listen. I'm very excited for episode two. <laughs> uh, yes, and if you want to support all these great shows like About Face and the rest of the Doof Network, 
uh, head to patreon.com slash doofmedia uh, where you can donate to help keep us afloat. Yep. Um, while you're on Patreon, why don't you check out Wildbo's Patreon, huh? Huh? Go do it. Uh, it's patreon.com slash Wildbo and you can help fund Wildbo doing all these great things and maybe he'll write that uh, that full version of Black Lamb's Blood that we can all read and enjoy to our heart's content. <laughs> Uh, and if you want to yell at us about anything that we said uh, in this yep. uh, episode or yell at each other, uh, you- mostly. Yep. <laughs> yeah. uh, you can do that in the discussion thread that will be linked in the show notes below. Yes, there's always a lot of great discussion threads, uh, discussion topics that, that get uh, that get kind of diverged into in these threads. Um, mm. I always love seeing them. So, Diamond yeah, I, the- I don't check it. I don't check in enough. I keep finding cool comments that are that are already too old and and i I gotta get in there more (laughs) you feel weird responding to it don't you and it's like oh shit this is a really good point but it's been a few days i don't know yeah Yeah. well also i'm usually not checking till the next the next episode's already out so it's like (laughs) am i allowed to comment in a 4.11 thread when 4.12's out i don't know what are the rules here what are the rules anyway the one rule is go into the discussion threads there's a lot of good stuff happening in there um yeah talk about the chapter it's fun why not So apart from that, we'll see everyone on Monday for 5.1. See you then.